Today's program has been brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Kane5.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon and welcome. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights with me, your host, Katie Kiefer. Uh, We're going to be talking today, and I'm really excited about this guest, with Bob Martin. Uh, Bob is the Director of Food System Policy at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health's Center for a Livable Future, as well as a guest lecturer at the school. Formerly, he was a senior officer at the Pew Environment Group and was the executive director of the Pew Commission on Industrial Farm Animal Production, which will be the thrust of this program. Uh, This was a two-year study funded by the Pew Charitable Trust, uh, thanks to a grant from Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Health. The charge to the commission was to to recommend solutions to the problems caused by concentrated animal feeding operations in the areas of public health, the environment, rural communities, and animal welfare. The commission's final report, Putting Meat on the Table, Industrial Farm Animal Production in America, was released on April 28, 2008. Welcome to the program, Bob. Thank you so, so much for taking time out of your day. I'm really excited to have you on. So we're going to talk about not just that uh, report, but the five-year follow-up, which you just issued in November, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right? That's right, uh, Katie, and I appreciate being on the program today. Thank you. Oh, no, it's great to have you. I mean, you are you are the man, Bob. You are the man. So um, you guys, you did a follow-up uh, study that um, looked at all of the areas that you had focused on in the original Putting Meat on the Table uh, report, which included, as stated earlier in the introduction, uh, environmental issues, animal welfare issues, et cetera, et cetera. Um, now, in the center, in the section on antibiotics in the food system, in the follow-up report, you found that, quote, and there's been so much news about this, right, in the last four or five months, and I've been covering this for a couple of years, the antibiotics issue, so um, well up on that. But administering non-therapeutic antimicrobials to food animals is particularly problematic since chronic administration of low doses of antimicrobials contribute to the evolution and proliferation of antimicrobial resistance strains of bacteria. Now, this particular statement is widely disputed by the meat industry as well as the scientists uh, that work in the meat industry. And I know that because I attended the National Institute of Animal Agriculture Summit meeting on antibiotics in the food chain. And it was astonishing how many of them seem to have come to a completely different conclusion. How do you explain that discrepancy? Well, I think they're cherry-picking the science, to be quite honest. I mean, if you look at it from a public health perspective, there are numerous studies linking the non-therapeutic use of antibiotics in food animal production to uh, concerns or direct inf- uh, infections uh, in people. Uh, there have been studies in Canada. There's studies in the Netherlands. Um, a recent study from the University of Hong Kong uh, late last year showed that uh, women who um, uh, ate um, chicken that had a resistant bacteria on it developed uh, urinary tract infections, 
there was a study done by uh, recently by a U.S. researcher that showed traits the uh, genomic sequencing of susceptible staff, tracing it to uh, pigs where it became uh, ST398, which is a the community acquired uh, strain of MRSA, methicillin-resistant Staph aureus, and it came back out of the swine operations because of routine low-level use of tetracyclines. It came back out into the human population as a uh, strain of MRSA. So there are a number of studies. Uh, Denmark has has been tracking this issue since 1996 when it it banned the non-therapeutic use of antibiotics in swine production. And uh, resistant infections in animals have gone down. Antibiotic use has gone down in Denmark, and they show a track that shows human uh, resistant infections have gone down as well. And like I said, similar studies have have shown that in the Netherlands and uh, and Canada. So I think it's a matter of um, cherry-picking science, looking at incomplete data, and, of course, uh, wanting to promote a, the current uh, business model that's prevalent in animal production. Yeah. No, there's no, uh, there's no question in my mind that that is the agenda. Um, but it's just amazing to me how they managed to, um, you know, uh, ignore so many of these uh, very uh, well-funded and researched studies uh, that prove exactly what you have just been talking about. And um, it was astonishing to me how many scientists, there was a full day of scientists getting up and talking about how more studies need to be done, how the evidence is not conclusive. And I, I was just, I frankly, quite astonished by that. Now, what they, what they are all talking about and what was full of, in the media all over the place this winter, earlier this winter, was uh, the FDA guidances number 209 and 213, which established new uh, suggested uh, voluntary protocols for using antibiotics. And um I interviewed a vet uh, named Scott Hurd, who used to be part of the USDA and um, is a doctor of veterinary medicine and is also a proponent of, uh, you know, quote unquote, judicious antibiotic use, which, of course, has never been defined, actually, uh, at least not completely to my satisfaction. And he claims that the voluntary element of these FDA guidances, rather than out and out banning them, phasing them out and banning them, which is what your report suggested was the best course of action. Of action, he says that uh, just having it voluntary will result in swifter compliance, rather than legal challenges that would ensue from these mandatory bans, and that would slow down the process of withdrawal even further. So, what what do you think are the chances that the voluntary aspect of this is actually going to, um, shall we say, be productive? Well, I think the um, FDA released the guidances, and they uh, they set up a 90-day window for companies to say whether or not they were going to comply with the guidances, and and many of them uh, announced fairly quickly they were going to comply. And uh, at the same time, the pharmaceutical companies that said they were going to comply were also saying, we don't look at this as a material event, which is a signal to their uh, stockholders, shareholders, that... Um, you know, things won't change. I think I think what you have to look at in the guidance is, number one, they are voluntary, and they were written really at the consent of the regulated. Uh, FDA, the Center for Veterinary Medicine, uh, worked closely with the industry to craft these guidances. And it does get down to the definition of terms. What the industry will say is that they do not uh, use antibiotics any longer for growth promotion. But if you look 
uh, at the loophole in the judicious use uh, definitions that they allow it for disease prevention. Right. But it's it's not so much what you call the protocol, it's really how the antibiotics are used. So for growth promotion, it's uh, daily low-level doses of antibiotics, many of them that are important in human medicine, delivered through feed and water. And it's the same way that uh, the disease prevention uh, protocol is structured. Same dosage levels over a long period of time, Mm. generally for the animal's entire life, except when they're withdrawn right before slaughter and delivered through the feed and water. So you can call it growth promotion, you can call it disease prevention, you can call it London Bridge, but if you do the same, (laughs) if you do the same thing, it's uh, it's going to drive antibiotic resistant infection. Right. It results in the same end. Yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> I like that you can call it London Bridge. That's great. I, I would I would point out too that the synthesizer of antibiotics, um, Sir Alexander Fleming, when he received the Nobel Prize for the development of penicillin. I mean, penicillin was a naturally occurring. Uh, uh, compound, um, and he just learned to synthesize it. And he said that he outlined the exact wrong use of um, antibiotics, and it was uh, low levels uh, administered over a long period of time, because early on, people thought, well, you know, we'll just use antibiotics like like they do in food animal production, and people won't get sick. Right. Uh, they, they won't get infections. And he said uh, his basic guideline was that's an ignorant way to use this wonder drug, this daily uh, low-level usage over an extended period. He said if you use enough, uh, if you use antibiotics, use enough to kill bacteria. And that's, of course, what you do in a therapeutic application. If a person or an animal is diagnosed with a microbial disease, then you administer an antibiotic at a level that's uh, large enough to kill the bacteria or most of the bacteria over a short period of time, maybe uh, a week or so. Yeah, at least that. Right. Absolutely. Um, And then uh, one of the examples that was frequently cited in this particular event was uh, from my friend, Dr. Raymond, who is a former FSIS uh, director and a medical doctor from Nebraska. And, And Dr. Raymond said, well, imagine if you had an outbreak of meningitis in a college dorm, why then you would give all of the students a low dose of antibiotics so that they wouldn't get meningitis. And I haven't really looked into the medical, uh, aspect of that. I mean, like whether or not that would actually work, but it just, it was the most tired and um, ineffective, uh, unconvincing argument I think I heard the whole time I was there. But anyway. Yeah, can... that's, that's actually not what you would do. You would, I don't think so. Yeah, you would, uh, uh, if it were a college dorm, uh, so you have a discrete number of people, what you would probably do is uh, first isolate what type of um, uh, meningitis it was, what right. type of bacteria it was. Then you would uh, treat the uh, sick kids, and you may treat uh, the kids exposed to the meningitis with a therapeutic level uh, for about a week. Um, In other words, it wouldn't be a sub-therapeutic dose. It would be the full-on dose, just to make sure. No, it wouldn't be low dose. Yeah. So what you'd likely do in that instance is you'd actually create a worse bacteria coming out of the dorm um, because it would develop resistance. Right. Um, Incredible. Yeah. uh, Fleming noticed uh, that uh, when he was working to synthesize antibiotics in the mid-1930s that 
bacteria developed resistance immediately. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's not, it doesn't take a long time. It's an immediate thing. And bacteria that uh, have a resistance to one or more antibiotics can actually pass that to bacteria that have never been in contact with antibiotics. So right. it's a really, it's a precious drug that's being used irresponsibly. Absolutely. Um, Bob, we're going to take a quick break right now because I want to get into environmental issues and also the th- really what really concerns me, which is uh, how studies are funded and the sort of co-opting of science by industry. So stay tuned, folks. We'll come right back with, uh, with Bob Martin from uh, the Center for a Livable Future. And uh, right now, just take a moment for the sponsor drop. This is Leaving by Dead Stars on the Heritage Radio Network.org. This is Chris Howell from Kane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. In our industrial world, most wines have become brands, but the wines I love are so much more. Fine wine is a civilizing substance that connects us to nature. It cannot be stamped out in a factory. If you're listening to this great show, you probably eat different. I urge you to drink different too. Go deeper. Kane5.com This is What Doesn't Kill You, a Food Industry Insights with me, your host, Katie Kiefer. I'm speaking with Bob Martin from the Center for a Livable Future. We're talking about the follow-up, five-year follow-up report to Putting Meat on the Table, which was a seminal study conducted by uh, the Center for a Livable Future and by the Pew Charitable Trust uh, investigating the agriculture, the livestock agriculture industry, which, as listeners know, is a particular interest of mine, since that's about all I ever talk about. Um, but I want to talk about some of the things you brought up, because you know, your, your report is divided into five or six sections, and one of them is environmental issues. Um, and one of the things that just blows my mind is how toothless the EPA is in trying to deal with um, confined area feeding operations and monitoring their waste products, whether they're air emissions or whether they're uh, solid wastes. So um, tell me again what NAEMS is, National... So uh, Agricultural Environmental Envir- Monitoring System. That was it. Okay. National Agriculture Environmental Monitoring System was conducted. I'm going to read a little quote from your thing. Uh, As an EPA industry partnership, in addition to the funding from specific operations, industry trade organizations, the National Pork Board, the National Chicken Council, the National Milk Producers, American Egg Board uh, also provided funding. Purdue University led the study with assistance from other land-grant universities. The study has been characterized as having a conflict of interest given the industry funding of the study and the sole involvement of agricultural schools without inclusion of public health schools. And this this study was, uh, you know, tracking, I think it was air emissions from CAFOs, but it doesn't really matter. The point is, is that here is an example of something that I find more and more alarming, and that is that science is essentially being bought and paid for by uh, meat industry or, you know, livestock industries. Can you talk a little bit about the kinds of studies that arise from um industry funding land grant and how we can actually maybe get someday, you know, an independent study that doesn't, I mean, all these universities are funded by industrial agriculture. Yeah, that was one of the Pew Commission's real concerns um, that so much of the funding, and what was interesting as we traveled around the country and met with uh, researchers at land grant institutions who uh, most of the time really wanted to pursue, you know, kind of sound science and take it wherever it led, 
would say that because of the pullback on public funding um, of research, mm-hmm. the only place they could go was the industry, and they all raised questions about, you know, the the integrity of the science when the industry's funding it. Um, that error emission study you uh, outlined is yeah. exactly a perfect example of, of what's wrong with the current system. It was uh, coordinated by a gentleman at, at Purdue who actually came and met with the commission. And it, it, when his study was released, even people that wanted it to be a success said that the data collection was so poorly done and mm. so poorly organized that the, that it was essentially worthless. Um, and so you have groups like Tyson um, that funds a lot of research at the University of Arkansas. They have a poultry center there called the Tyson Poultry Center. And, yep. you know, it, it's, you know, I can't begrudge any company that wants to fund research to foster their business model, but what you need is a countervailing balance of public interest research that, uh, you know, keeps in mind what's good for the general public. And that's one of the things we do here at the Center for a Livable Future is we try to understand what's going on in industrial farming practices and the public health outcomes, negative or positive public health outcomes, sure. although most of them are negative when they're when companies are feeding arsenic to poultry and and non-therapeutic <laughs> antibiotics. And <laughs> yeah. Um, as as well as we work at the the cross section of environmental uh, exposure and public health. So uh, the Clean Water Act is the primary um, way that CAFOs are regulated uh, and licensed, um, and that is administered by the EPA. EPA sets a national floor on water pollution standards uh, uh, that that you know pollutants that come out of CAFOs. Each state can have a more strict standard if they wish. Uh, they just can't have a lower standard. Right. But the pr- but the problem is EPA doesn't even know where all these operations are. And um, one of the uh, one other Pew Commission recommendation was to bring more of these operations under EPA uh, permitting. Um, but to do that, you have to first locate them. And the Obama administration started doing that um, last, well, it was probably the summer of 2012, but suspended it from pressure by the industry um, because I think they were worried about winning Iowa and Minnesota. Uh-huh. Wow. You know, I'm just amazed. Uh, I've had Patty Lovera on from Food and Water Watch, and we talked about just the fact that the EPA and basically there is no regulatory agency that is even able to identify where every single, um, you know, uh, intensive uh, livestock ag entity is taking place like i mean there is no sort of map there's no i don't understand how all of these you know rogue um (laughs) like how does that work bob how can you open up a confined area feeding operation and have anywhere from 500 to 5,000 head of cattle or pigs or whatever and not have gone through some sort of permitting process either through the state or through the epa how does that happen well a lot of it's it's a county level siting issue that and and in so many cases, county commissioners really, they either look at it erroneously as a jobs issue, which actually the large-scale industrial operations employ fewer people at lower wages than, than a more diversified farming operation that includes mm-hmm. livestock. But they look at it as an investment um, you know, for their county. A lot of times there's a conflict of interest at the county commission level um, because some of them actually may be investors in the operations. Right. And, you know, so if they're a certain size, they just stay kind of under the radar, so to speak. Uh, I would say that Food and Water Watch has put together a pretty good 
uh, CAFO map. Um, they through public sources and uh, and uh, you know permit information that's available, so they can show the concentration state by state. Uh-huh. But that's that as good as that is. It's it is kind of incomplete too. Wow. Um, let's let's jump ahead for a second since you mentioned uh, county politics and sort of the conflicts of interests. Um, it just strikes me that livestock agriculture seems to have a really disproportionate influence on legislators. I mean, given the ag-gag laws that have come up, um, the many uh, efforts to disarm whatever environmental laws are already in place. Um, and you cite in your, um, in your report that in May 2013, an amendment co-sponsored by a uh, Republican from Texas was successfully added uh, to the House version of the Farm Bill to repeal the 2011 GIPSA rules, and that's the Great Inspection and Packers Services Act, very old act that basically tries to protect farms farmers from being swallowed by consolidation. If I'm I'm not I'm overstating I mean I'm sim- oversimplifying that, but still. And then you go on to say that the near total collapse of those efforts, as in the antitrust efforts, with subsequent erosion of producer contracting rights promoted heavily by integrators in legislation approved by both the House and the Senate will allow continuing harm to producers and the economic deterioration of rural communities. So can we talk for a second about why why these guys are able to um, summon so much uh, legislative power uh, to their back pockets? Is it only because they are feeding the back pockets of whoever's in office? I mean, is it really that simple that it's just like basic, your basic garden variety of corruption? Well, the the integrator companies uh, that really drive that kind of legislation uh, do have a lot of uh, political power. They have a lot of um, species promotion groups like the Chicken Council and Pork Producers sure. that you know, support that that model. And, um, you know, the Obama administration, to their credit, went through a series of meetings to talk about contracting issues and consolidation and concentration of the industry, came up with some fairly decent um, rules on poultry contracting in particular. Uh, poultry is about 99% integrated in the country, so there's yeah. le- less than 1% of the producers are independent. They uh-huh. They work on production contracts. And they can change about every 45 days. The companies can uh, change the requirements in the contract. And so to keep uh, a cash flow going, these uh, these producers, many times uh, they're fairly small, um, uh, have to keep abiding by the contracts. And so the Obama administration tried to uh, do some contracting reform and – uh, when it got to the uh, congressional level, the large integrator companies and the species promotion groups put pressure on Congress to put pressure on the administration, and they ended up dropping most of the uh, most of the reforms. And there has been a real effort, like this guy from Texas you mentioned, to undo the progress that even had been made going back in the Bush administration about right. improving contractor rights uh, vis-a-vis the the company. So it's it's really about power politics. Yeah, it's amazing to me. I mean, and and just to be clear for aud- the audience, like some of these contractor rights include things like, you know, not being able to terminate a contract without uh, any advance notice or, you know, suddenly deciding that you're not going to do business with this guy who's taken out X number of hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of loans in order to build the barns that house the contract birds. Um you know, and then suddenly the the integrator says, "I don't want to do business with you anymore because I don't like what you're doing or whatever the reason is." You know, it's like it's well, yeah, stuff, really it, basic stuff like that. 
you know? Yeah, basic stuff like that and, and price transparency. Yeah. Um, you know, what the, what the producer is doing to get a lower price than a guy down the road who may be getting a higher price. Uh, and even just the basic things like, okay, I don't get a contract. Tell me why I'm being terminated. Right. All and they don't have things, to do that. Yeah, they don't have to do any of that. That's just amazing to me. Another sort of sidebar to this, um, God, Bob, we're just going to have to have you back. Um, another sidebar to this is the fact that uh, companies like Tyson do not own their own shit, um, which has been the source of a lot. I mean, just to be completely blunt about it, but like the the big um, uh, suit against a particular grower in uh, the Chesapeake Bay area who was a Tyson contractee, right? And then he, right. they actually won. I forget. It was not Food and Water Watch. I forget who the Watershed Alliance yeah, water, or something. Water Keepers Alliance. Water Keepers Alliance. Um, anyway, they, they lost that suit um, and because they were unable to ultimately prove that the, that the waste runoff from this uh, particular guy's barns was polluting the Chesapeake. But the thing that was amazing to me and that it continues to amaze me about all of these contractors is that they, they'll buy the birds, they'll buy the feed, they'll buy the drugs, but they don't own the shit. And so that's the, the farmer's responsibility, and that is the hardest part to manage, as far as I can tell. I mean, as an outsider looking at the industry as a whole, managing waste is unbelievably difficult, expensive, and uh, as we're seeing now, is, is even almost dangerous at this point between the arsenic, the antibiotics, the hormones, etc. I mean, it's really, that to me is the biggest problem, and if anything needs to be reformed, it's that aspect of well, contracting and, and, and integrating. Yeah, that's a very good point. I mean, the, the saying in poultry production is the only thing that the producer owns is the dead and the poop. Yeah. And, um, and it hit, in an area like the, Del, the Delmarva Peninsula uh, out here on the East Coast, where uh, there are millions and millions of uh, broiler chickens raised a year, that it, it's becoming a not only like a nitrogen runoff problem, but right. a phosphorus fixation in the soil. So phosphorus is building up. It doesn't uh, wash off. Mm -hmm. and, but what it does is it'll eventually kill the soil. And so, I mean, the, the real, um, you know, if you want to see uh, people like Tyson and Purdue, their executives' heads explode, say they need to be co-liable for the, the shit that's produced. Uh, <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Well, that's why I'm saying it's like this is the naughtiest problem, and they have managed to make sure that legislation is in place to protect them from having to co-own the shit. And, right. you know, I just think, I mean, of all the things that enrage me about this integrator system and contract growing, I think it is that which I find that as the most unfair and the most egregious as they reap whatever profits there are from livestock ag, which we all know is probably not as much as, you know – uh, I mean, end product maybe, but when it comes from your profit on each animal, it's not so great. And so the idea that a farmer has to take his tiny percentage and plow some of that back into managing waste, I just, you know, I, I can't understand how that, how that has not resulted in more of a cooperation between contract growers where they fund and lobby for well, reforms. Well, that is one of the problems, too, that anytime contract growers try to get together to talk about problems, they end up losing the contracts. And um, right. that was one of the other things that, you know, the the contracting protection that, uh, I mean, some of these guys are just scared to death to talk to one another or to complain to anybody about the problems in, right. the, in the contracting or because they'll lose the revenue stream of the contract with the integrator. So sure. it's, a, it's a real problem. I You know, the 
the ultimate solution is, uh, you know, less animal density. I mean, um, that animals be reintegrated in, in the crop rotation live, uh, production system instead of, you know, um, being, you know, all the birds in the country being produced in about five states called the broiler belt. Right. Um, that, um, and we are talking about nine billion chickens, folks. Right. Just so you know, we raise nine billion chickens in this country. That's a lot of birds. <laughs> yes, it is. And and the, this this style of contracting, by the way, is is bleeding into the pork business. The, mm-hmm. Like I said, it's about ninety nine percent contract production in broilers. It's about sixty five percent contract production now in hogs. And so, really, one of the last uh, areas that's that's not affected or is not uh, you know inordinately affected by it is uh, beef cattle production. Um, Why do you think that is? Well, I think that uh, it's. Uh, takes longer to bring uh, a beef cow to market. Uh, you know, in uh, in chickens, it's every forty five days. It's, right. You know, uh, but hogs are that. eight or ten months, right? Yeah, right. And, and cattle aren't and, much more than that. I mean, they're yeah, eleven. Well, to 13 it's, years you know, old. eighteen months to three years, depending on you know your production practice. So it's mm. a little. And I I would say that uh, you know, cattlemen are are a pretty independent breed. Yeah. <laughs> I would say that about hog farmers, too, though. I mean, to be honest with you, I've met a few, and they don't seem like guys who really want to, you know, knuckle under to Smithfield or Schwankway, as we should call it now. That's a new name. You know that, right? That's right. They renamed it. I can't believe that. Actually, there was, I don't know if, this is another aside, but um, I don't know if you read Meeting Place. Oh, I the do. magazine. Did you see in, I think it was in the December issue, there was a very strongly worded uh, piece about the acquisition of Smithfield by Shuanghui and this particular, um, I think she was an s- economist, uh, was saying that this is just a really dire development in uh, the American food system and should not have been permitted under any circumstances. And she went on to list chapter and verse about why this was really such a bad uh, direction to move into. So, um, But that will be another topic for another day. Because I interviewed somebody from the industry, Raul Baxter came on. He was like, oh, yeah, it's going to be great. No, of course workers' rights will be respected. Of course the <laughs> quality will stay the same. Well, I don't know why everybody's worried about this. Yeah, all- <laughs> Those guys have have such ties to the industry. You know, they um, they do. Meeting, Pla- meeting place does a pretty good job of highlighting issues. As a matter of fact, their editor about four or five months ago came out saying ag gag laws were a stupid response by the industry. Yeah, you know, to the pressure it was feeling. So they they can you know be fairly balanced at times. But some of their columnists really, I mean, because <laughs> Scott Hurd is there on there all the time, and, yeah. and Baxter, and they they all have they're all. And Doc Raymond, my best friend. I love Doc. I got into trouble with Doc Raymond by uh, from uh, a blog I wrote for the Huffington Post in which I characterized him as the master of ceremonies at the NIAA, you know, thing, and um, and uh, just remarked on the fact that he is a paid consultant for Merck and Alenco, and he was really mad at me for that. Yeah. But anyway, <laughs> that's another story. Um, we have to wrap it up. Unfortunately, I'm going to go over a few minutes just because I feel like talking more. Um, but Bob, the 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 end result of your report, of the most recent report that came out in uh, November 2013, at the end of every section, it says, we could find no evidence of dot, dot, dot. Um, so... And it was just incredible to me. Literally every section, no evidence of state 
reform, you know, not like nothing has happened. And in some cases, you point out regression, for example, the introduction of ad gag laws. What happened? Like, why did this just fall on deaf ears? Is that because the industry is that powerful? Well, I think the industry is powerful. I do think it had a, a good impact on focusing the dialogue and informing um, activists, non-governmental organizations that were interested, people interested in their local food system, right. um, people actually, policymakers at the state and federal level who are interested in change. I think it was at the time the original Pew report was released, it was a pretty good glossary of the available science, kind of synthesized in a way that, that laymen could you know, identify with and understand. So I, I think that and the Obama administration started off pretty well in a couple of areas. Or, you know, he he said that uh, in North Carolina in the primaries that uh, when he was asked about the Pew Commission report, he said, "Yeah, EPA's got to find out where these are and and uh, find polluters to make them stop." Um, and I think they started uh, at CVM with the best of intentions uh, when Margaret Hamburg, the head of FDA, right. was being. Um, uh, uh, before Senate confirmation, she said we should be reacting to antibiotic resistance as, as if our hair were on fire. <laughs> um, yeah, and, that's how I feel. <laughs> yeah, and so, but you know, when in the process, you know, the FDA CVM has a lot of holdovers from previous administrations. It's kind of a revolving door between uh, meat promotion groups and, and right. the government. Um, it just all got watered down, and the guidances from FDA came out after our uh, report was released. So That's right. So we, we probably would have said something about – we probably would have trashed that uh, guidance <laughs> in the report had, had it come out before. So right. they, they at least did that, but it's, it's wrong-headed. It's, it's wrong-headed. And, and the thing is, is that, um, you know, I don't see animal ag going away, and I – I have to say, I also don't see it being reintegrated into a more sort of holistic farming model, sort of a la polyphase farms. I mean, on a bigger scale, obviously. But um, I don't really know how we're going to get away from the intensive um, operations that we conduct now. And I certainly don't see other people in the world like JBS, uh, Swift or Shuang Hui or any of the other foreign players uh, changing the model because they, they like what we're doing. Um, so I, I I don't know what the next step is. What do you think the next step should be? Well, I think that uh, you know the conclusion of the report kind of said it best. Change will come with uh, an, uh, an informed and uh, aggressive uh, uh, consumer, and I think mm-hmm. that that is uh, still um, happening. I think more, I, and more I, people. Uh, more and more. I think so too. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think. The, the chairman of the commission used to say politicians see the light when they begin to feel the heat. Mm-hmm. And I think that when the heat builds up uh, enough, I, I do think there will be change. And I think countries like Denmark have shown that you can raise large numbers of animals in a not strictly traditional uh, diversified farm setting, but you can do it in a way that's not damaging to the environment or a threat to public health. Right which is really what we're after, I mean, aside from the animal welfare aspects of it. Um, and well, it goes back to, uh, for I'm, I'm sorry to keep you on like this, but just I want to go back to one thing we were talking about earlier, which was the, the fact that uh, land-grant universities really seem entrenched in this model. And I, what I see when I meet young farmers from sort of the Corn Belt, you know, uh, livestock belt, is they are, they're very much 
proponing, uh, uh, promoting that same system. Like I don't see a lot of them as saying, oh, you know, this technology is really not the best thing. Um, I see the land-grant universities churning out just more of the same. And that, to me, is very concerning. Because if there isn't movement within the education system, then how are these kids going to find out, you know, that there are other models that they could be using? I mean, I know, for instance, the Denmark, you know, ban of antibiotics is poo-pooed by the industry Right, left, and center. Oh, my God, their antibiotic use has gone way up, and they have tons more mortality, blah, blah, blah. Meanwhile, that isn't actually what happened, but that is the story that's being promoted. And I don't know how you change that narrative within the land-grant universities. What do you think about that? Well, I think that's a very difficult problem because, you know, they so many of them get so much money from the um, you know from the companies yeah. that, that want to promote the continuation of the status quo. And when you know the Department of Agriculture feels like they have to promote all forms of agriculture uh, and not you know you know look at the public health or environmental outcomes, uh, you have a problem because the extension services and the land grant schools are tied together in that way. So it, that's that is a problem that there's not an easy solution to. And I I just think that it's people on the on the public health and environmental impact advocacy side. Uh, you know, just have to make as many resources available as as possible to, you know, with the Internet, people, unfortunately, are going to have to do a lot of this for themselves because, yeah. you know, the the land-grant schools and the, and the uh, you know, county agent, um, uh, they're kind of doing what they've been taught to do. And right. it, it, it is hard to get that to change. Yeah. Well, on that happy note... <laughs> <laughs> I'm afraid we must wrap this up. Um, can we offer some sort of thing that you can promote? What do you? I mean, aside from letting people know where they can access this new report, which I assure you, folks, is very readable and really interesting. Uh, if you are interested in our food system at all, I highly recommend reading it. And uh, Bob, where can that be found? That can be found at uh, the Center for a Livable Future website. Uh, we're just www.clf. Uh, dot com. So, uh, or if you Google uh, Johns Hopkins Center for a Livable Future, uh, we come up uh, in a couple of different ways. So we have lots of information there. You do not not only about this report, but we've we've developed a curriculum for teaching the food system for high school kids. We're developing a primer on uh, industrial animal agriculture. We've got several researchers here um, that uh, have ongoing projects. We have a actually a food and faith initiative where we try to inform uh, congregations and synagogues um, of, um, you know, information about the food system. So we're, we, we look at any issue at the intersection of agriculture, public health, and the environment. Right. Fascinating. Well, I, I strongly recommend the website. It does have masses of great information, such as you've just outlined. Um, and I want to thank you again for being a guest today. Thanks for going over with me. I'm sorry I kept you so long, but uh, it was just too good to, to stop you. No, so, I appreciate <laughs> I, I appreciate the offer, and uh, I'll be happy to come back. Oh, I sure hope so. I really enjoyed this. And uh, keep in touch with any new stuff you want to talk about. I'd be happy to book you again. So Okay. Um, and thanks very much to my sponsor, Kane 5 Vineyard, and to Heritage Radio Network for letting me do this show. See you next week, folks. We'll be back with the ASPCA. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. 
You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.